All right, it's DT Systems, dog tested and dog tough. You know, we like that dog in them, baby. We've been using the H20 1820. Over the last several months, we've been playing with this unit. Our friends at Standing Stone Kennels, Ethan and Kat, they've been using it for years and we've been playing with it. We really like it. I think for the dog trainer, the hunter, and the guy or gal who's training their dog to get ready for duck season, we'll really enjoy the 1820. Super reliable, super consistent, great unit for you and your dogs. H20 1820. Dog tested. Gunner Kennels, baby. Hashtag man's best kennel. Well, it's also now hashtag man's best food crate. It's freaking raccoon proof. You can't get into this thing. Your dog can't bust into the lid and eat all the food. Trust me, I know Memphis has done it in the past. She looks like a blown up pumpkin. Boom. But not anymore. We've got the Gunner Kennel food crate. It's easy to pack easy to store keeps food dry which food's an investment man that purina baby it ain't cheap anymore so keep it dry good all that stuff easy to pack easy to store the gunner kennel food crate slide into dms if you'd like to learn more all right our number one asked question is revolving around force fetch whether your dog drops the bumper or duck at the edge of the water or you failed a few hunt tests because the dog monkeys with the birds or won't pick up a bird let me help you help your dog bunch of different breeds bunch of different personalities start to finish teaching you how to do it links in the description another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What's going on, everybody, and welcome to another episode. I am excited for this one. We we rarely get to do the in-person podcasts, and so it's such a pleasure to introduce Kevin Sheff, the Retriever Coach. He's been on. We just were talking. This is probably our fifth podcast, and he's up here doing workshops across New York State, and we finally got a chance to sit down. We had a beautiful dinner together, um, meet our family, and now we're up in the office, if that's what you want to call it, the podcast room. And we're going to sit down and do a Q&A answering your questions. Kevin, welcome to Parish, New York, man. Hey, thank you. I'm so excited to be here. It's a, it's a pleasure meeting you. <laughs> Finally, yeah. Finally, yeah. We said that it's like we already knew each other, but uh, it was always over Zoom or, or just over the phone. So this is a, a real pleasure. I appreciate you making the drive. Very cool. Let's uh, do a, we'll do a quick recap. If you haven't listened to his episodes, I'm going to ask Kevin to do he just shook his head and go, you son of a gun. There's a million of them. Give it a Google. Kevin Chef, Lone Ducks, Gundog Chronicles. But we'll tag them in. Oh, the- yeah, 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 yeah. We'll put them in the, the show notes and uh, take a gander at them. They're real good. We've gotten a lot of good feedback on them, and you'll enjoy this one, too. Yep. Um, so, again, show notes will be our past episodes with Kevin. But uh, let's talk about your workshops real quick. You just had one this weekend. What was it about, and how did it go? 
Uh, so this workshop was a personalized training workshop where people send in a questionnaire before they arrive. I get to read up on what they're doing well, what they're not doing well, where they're having problems, and I focus on their individual needs, their dog's needs, their needs, and help them get better at the places where they're having trouble. And then, of course, along the way, they're learning a little bit about concepts, they're learning a little bit about training approaches, philosophy, that sort of thing. Uh, and yeah, that's that's what we covered this week. So one of the things that I wanted to ask is with these workshops that you're doing, and we've had seminars too, where people fill out these questionnaires and in their backyard, in on their like home grounds that they and their dog are used to, the dog is at X place, right? This is what they're showing them in training. But then they come and see us, new property, new setups, what have you. And the classic, my dog's never done that before, or I'm not sure why this is happening now occurs and and me slash you, we have to dissect. Is there a breakdown in the training? Like what's going on? And and I was wondering if if you see that a lot with these kind of scenarios. Yeah, absolutely. Um, people will come to these areas where their dogs have never been on these grounds or they're not familiar with them. They can get a little lost. They can encounter elements along the way that will throw another you know, stick in the spoke, so to speak, as, as the dog's doing these tests. And, and the, the handlers can be totally surprised by what's going on. But it's, it's nothing really that they should be concerned about other than, hey, you need to get on more grounds and put your dog into positions where they're not familiar with territory. Do you think that they show up you know, we we have, I would say, test-wise, you know, dogs who, when they get to a trial or a test, get squirrely, you know, a little overexcited. They get, and then, you know, in training, they're diligent and solid. When they come to your seminars, do you think that they get a little wild hair in their ass and get a little uh, overexcited because of more people, more dogs, all that? I think I see two things. One, for sure, we do get to see the dogs that that think they're at an event, and they're certainly going to show some of their true colors in terms of how excited they can get or out of control they can get. The other thing I get to see occasionally is a dog gets a little bit of stage fright, and mm. then they're concerned, they're not relaxed, and again, these are the handlers are going, "What's going on? I, you know, my dog's not behaving the way." I typically see it behave in, and that requires a little bit of a different approach trying to get these dogs to relax and and feel okay in this environment. Yeah. I also think what I have seen is people, the people themselves are like, I'm being judged. I'm being watched by my peers and they get way more nervous and therefore it goes down the lead to the dog. But they're like, they're so clammy. I totally agree. I think that sometimes it's the handler sending off some energy that makes the dog a little bit nervous. Maybe it's not the environment they're in, but the way the handler is is sending signals. So for someone who wants to come to one of your workshops, would you say that, well, I would just say like, what would, what would you tell them? If, if they're listening now saying, I want to come to a workshop, you know, how would they feel day three versus day one? Oh, you know, definitely day one, they're going to be a little bit nervous. They're not going to know what to expect. And they also probably feel they have something to prove or that they're being judged. And the the honest thing is, is I'm not judging any dog. I, my brain is totally on, 
I want to know exactly who you are, what your, what your dog's like, and I'm trying to figure out how to make you better. Mm-hmm. I don't care where your dog is at or what problem your, your dog is having or you're having. Let me help you. So come in with an open mind. Uh, come in with some trust. If you can't, if you signed up for the workshop, you obviously think that I have something to offer. Um, and show me that you trust me and listen to what I have to say. Don't judge it. Just digest it. And, um, and uh, I'm not saying you have to follow everything I tell you to do, but definitely listen to it with an open mind and and see how maybe it can help you out. Absolutely. Uh, so this recent workshop that you did was very, it wasn't on a specific topic. It was they answered the questionnaire and this is, we're going to make it individualized per person slash dog. What were the, what was the key thing that you saw was the main thing that people had or wanted to work on? Let's see. There was definitely some some issues around the water that some dogs needed to work on. Nothing out of the ordinary, very textbook type things like how do we get a dog to enter the water properly? How do we get a dog to exit the water properly? There was also some issues where dogs would be running blinds and they would get into situations where they would get out of control, primarily scent. Scent is one of the uh, things that really affect dogs on blinds. And I think we're going to talk about that a little bit later tonight, but mm-hmm. helping people understand how to set up training that allows you to put dog into situations where scent is a factor and your dogs begin to exhibit those behaviors where they get out of control uh, and how to deal with that and uh, how often you should be putting your dog into those situations so that you have a dog that's under control when you go to a, go to an event. That was a a big one. Another one was communication online. You know, events are passed or won based on how well you can talk your dog into things. The 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 higher levels of competition, whether you're running master, or you're running all age stakes, are very complex. And being able to talk your dog into doing specific things, uh, particularly when we're throwing triples and quads, which you don't see very often in training. Most people are doing doubles and singles. Uh, they get into those situations. They don't know how to communicate with their dog, how to move with their dog, how to how to be patient with their dog. Um, teaching people how to do that is is really important if you're going to get the most out of your dog. So at this workshop, that was one of those things that they all struggled with, but that was like the main thing. So when you're talking about the scent on a blind, how did you put these dogs in that predicament? What were the setups like to have it unravel so that you coach these people on getting it raveled well the the ideal scenario is this you want to set up a, a set of marks in a field you don't want to put any of those gun stations or marks up against a tree line um you, you want to make sure the marks are in the field the other thing is you, you'd like a field where the cover's a little taller you know interesting a foot tall or maybe 12 to 14 inches something like that because the higher that cover is in the field the closer it is to a dog's nose, you know, if you're getting drag back scent or the dog is running through an old fall area, all of a sudden that scent is right up there by their nose. And um, so what we would do is we would set up a set of marks. We would run the set of marks. We're not going to run any blinds with the marks, just get the marks done. And then we're going to take a quarter of a turn around the field. So if we were running from the West end of the field, we might move to the South or the North end of the field. And then we would run blinds across and through the old fall areas across the return lines through the area where the running mat was from the marking test. And in all of those areas, those dogs are going to come into contact with scent. Mm-hmm. And the moment they do, then dogs start to exhibit the behaviors that get them into trouble. They don't stop on whistles. They auto cast. 
They look, in, look around when they're sitting on the whistle rather than at you for direction. They pop, they freeze on casts, all of those things that cause problems. And that gives you an opportunity to address them right there in that moment. Your job is not to get your dog from point A to point B when you're running blind. Your dog is to capitalize on opportunities that are presented when your dog is on route. They don't stop on a whistle. You get an opportunity to make a correction. They autocast. You get an opportunity to make a correction. They freeze on a cast. You get an opportunity to make a correction. And if you present this training scenario on a regular basis, what you end up with is a dog that's fundamentally sound when you run a blind and you can get through just about any blind in an event. I mean, obviously, there's other concepts that you have to teach the dog, but sure. but that's that's what we did in this three day workshop. It was three days, right? Yes, sir. How often are you putting these dogs in that situation so that those owners can be presented with this situation? Are you, I mean, are you doing it every day? Uh, no, because there's a lot to cover usually, <laughs> right. right? So my job is to show them, you know, somebody somebody had sent in a questionnaire, maybe there was a couple of them that sent in a questionnaire and said, my dog's getting out of control on blinds when they get into scent or something like that. And I said, okay, let's show them how to how to teach their dog or how to set standards that will eliminate the problems that they're having. So we would do that once or twice, and then we would move on to the, <laughs> there was a lot of other things to cover. So, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully they got a little bit out of it and they were able to take it home. They're going to go and apply it and then they're going to come back in several months and for another workshop. One of the hardest pieces of advice I can, I, I can't give people like I can say it, you can say it, you can set it up in your workshop, but they still only have one, maybe two dogs. And so there is not much drag back. There is not, you know, in that fall area, there was only one duck landing there. And now we've got to kick them loose through that area. I mean, versus us where I've got 30 ducks landed in that similar area, or I'll go to the training grounds that I'm lucky enough to train on the day after a hunt test. And I know exactly where all those marks were and we're kicking them loose through that. So I'm able to, I am able to tackle these situations head on and say, I can do this. How would you, because I'm lucky enough to deal with that and have that many dogs that are getting that scented up area for that single dog or two dog owner, how are you going to try and make that happen for them? Well, I'd make a couple of comments. One, you've got to find a training group. You know, you, you don't have to train with a training group all the time, but there's certain things that, that become very hard to accomplish on your own. Mm -hmm. So if you have to do a little driving once or twice a week to find situations like that that's just one of the sacrifices you have to make if you can't i mean set up your marking test at the very minimum you can dump a, dump a, a bag of birds on the ground in the fall area you can pluck birds or sorry pluck feathers out of a bird in mm -hmm. the fall area um when you get done you can walk around extensively in these fall areas because it's not just bird scent it's foot scent too um you can leave a holding blind out in the field from your marking test or a winger mm -hmm. or something, you know, something that would look like a where a gun station might have been. Um, so just these little things can certainly make a difference. Yeah. That'd be this that's the same advice I'd give is like look where the wind is, which way is the wind blowing, and then I'm going to have my stuff set up so that I can purposefully put that dog in a situation where they're running past a, a an area where I have plucked feathers and strewn them about or take a duck on like a string and just sling that sucker around on a mm -hmm. string through the grass. So it's getting set in this big area. 
it's like kind of the only way you can do it. I mean, totally agree. It's hard. Training alone is hard. It is. Especially if you want to get to the higher levels. Yes, definitely. Yeah. The best advice you gave was the the groups. Find a retriever training group and get with them and then connect and click with a few of those people and have them be your group. Plus, you all can trade training grounds, yep. getting your dog in different places. Training groups are are not just there to to for you know just to train with, but to share re- resources. Definitely. Yeah. And, and it's always nice to collaborate ahead of time and say, hey, I would like to work on this. What would you like to work on? Maybe we can figure out how we can help each other out with what we need. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's uh, let's digress. Let's get off this top topic for a second. And I, I do want to dive into what we were kind of talking about at dinner, just us all getting to know each other more and have our listeners get to know you a little bit more. Mm, hey, did you know that bismuth weighs more than steel. It's kind of a no-brainer, but maybe you didn't know that little fun fact. So what that means is you can shoot a smaller size than if you were to be shooting steel. So for instance, let's say you shot three-inch threes, which I used to shoot before I shot bismuth. I now shoot fives. That means you've got more BBs in each shell going down range that packs the same or more punch so more bbs down range means more likelihood of hitting the duck and with that bismuth more likely that that duck is going down better than doornail you and your dog get the retrieve bingo bango bongo bismuth by kent from the duck blind to the holding blind baby it's purina the food that fuels the truck of lone duck the big dogs are eating the 3020 purina pro plan sport we do the chicken blend. I've also had friends that have super success on the salmon blend, but it's a great food to fuel the athlete that gives you their all. So why don't you give them your all? Feed Purina. So before you took a hiatus from training dogs and now you train people to train dogs, how long were you a trainer and how did you get in the game? I got my first dog in 1996 and uh, trained it uh, as an amateur and and had other dogs along the way until 2000. And then it was asked by a professional if I want to come and be his assistant. And I took him up on the offer and uh, spent a couple of years there and then uh, decided that I wanted to try to do it on my own. Um, it was that simple. I mean, it was, there was definitely some things along the way that, that helped me make those decisions to do it. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure it's for everybody because there's a, it's, as you know, it's a, you're going to be working 16 hour days, 365 days a year. Yeah. And uh, there's not a lot of gla- glamour to it and there's a lot of pressure to it, but uh, I have no regrets. I, I loved, loved training dogs. Um, that's pretty much how I got there. Did you dabble in the hunt test world or did you Definitely. just... Oh, did you? Yes. Okay. I started out in the hunt test world, HRC hunt test. Okay. Uh, I had a dog that I got a, a hunting retriever champion title on. I took him to a grand. I had some other dogs when I first started as a pro that I, I, I ran HRC tests with and took to the grand and that sort of thing. Cool. So you had to go from Canada to the grand in America? Yes. yes. I don't know. First off, I've never been to a grand. So take that for what it's worth. But like, are there Canadians that come down and run our master national? Uh, I would, I don't know that the answer to that I would assume yes, but I know that the HRC tests are, they're international. So there are HRC tests in Canada. There are HRC tests in the U S obviously. And the grand has been held in Canada I didn't know uh, on more than one occasion. And, uh, uh, it's not like there's a, a Canadian HRC test and a U.S. HRC test. They're all together. Interesting. So 
the AKC is the American Kennel Club. The CKC is the Canadian Kennel Club. So your hunt test, were, were you running? It's the UKC. It's the UKC across the board. Oh, okay. I'm learning new things every day. Shoot. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So where did you run the Grand at? Uh, one was in Illinois and one was in Memphis, if I remember correctly. And um, is, that's not Music City, right? That's Nashville. Music City. Not sure. Memphis is not. I don't know. I don't know the answer. Again, I don't run HRC, but um, man, that's super cool. I didn't know that. I thought you just dabbled in the, or not dabbled, I thought you just did field trials and that was how you got in. The the pro that I worked with, uh, he was all uh, field trials. So once I turned pro, started working for him, it was primarily focused on field trial. But even after I left him, I still did some hunt test stuff for about a year or two. Okay. What was it like? I get asked this a lot because I've last year and this year I've done more field trials just because it, they've been fun to me and I've got dogs that have been doing all right at them. And what was it like for you going that route? Um, going the route to field trials? Mm -hmm. It was a huge leap. Um, very intimidating. Mm -hmm. uh, when I first started out training retrievers, especially working for this other pro, I mean, just a ton of stuff to learn. And I didn't learn a fraction of what I needed to know in that time. You know, you do a lot of learning when you're actually training dogs yourself. Um, but I got I got the basics. I I understood sort of the mechanics of it and and the textbook the textbook side of it. I didn't know anything about the art of dog training at that point. Mm. And of course, I thought I knew things one day, and then the next day, I didn't think I knew ever, anything. Which is what I think a lot of people feel when they're training dogs. They feel like they know everything one minute, and then the next minute, the rug gets pulled up from under them, and they question if they actually know anything. I feel you there. Yeah. So it it was hard, but I would say. It intrigued me. I loved the challenge of it. That was, you know, I I just loved the challenge of it. And it just carried me through my years. Still carries me through. I love the challenge of training a retriever for whatever level. It doesn't matter to me. Yeah. What has been fun for me the last summer and this summer has been the mentality change. It's also been the hardest thing to get used to is the mentality change of passing and winning. So the mentality change of winning feels really, 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 really good. But you'll go with, you know, go to to a trial with a dog that's very, very good. And I can get them through any weekend hunt test all day, unless they break. But I mean, they're just, they're in it. And, and they might make little mistakes, but you're handling them. You're a handler. I can get them through it and we get another pass and another pass and another pass. And then you go to the trial and you're like, damn, that was a good blind. They were in a good blind. And then they're not called back and you're like, it must not have been that good of a blind. And, or or whatever, you know, the mark was just, it hunted a little bit. And you're like, yeah, well, you know. And now that I've ran, however many I've ran, it's like, you almost can't hunt for a bird. They've got to be that precise to be in the, if you want to win. Like, I'm not going, I don't, I don't want to say this without sounding like a dink. I'm not trying to just go to the next series. I want to go to win. And the minute on the first bird down on the go bird and they hunt for 20 seconds, you're like, well, there you go. <laughs> you're probably out, dude. It's just a totally different verse. Like at the hunters, you're like, totally fine. Picked it up. All right, go get this one. Hunted for 20 seconds. Cool. Got it. Go to get this one. Hunted for 20 seconds. We got all three birds clean, hunted intelligently, did a nice job. There's a difference doing a nice job and the best job. Yeah, that's, that's definitely the case. You know, you're, 
it, it, it's you're, you're ranked. I mean, if there's 40 dogs in a trial or 60 dogs in a trial or 120 dogs in a trial, cause I've been in those too. There's only four placements at the end of the day and the yeah. judges have a limited amount of time to sort through them. So they're going to rank them. And if you don't make the cut, you don't make the cut. But one thing I would say is whether your dog hunts or not, don't ever judge your dog. Leave that up to the judges. Every time you send for a bird, whether it's a blind or a mark, your job is to get the best you can out of that dog. Because at the end of the day, even though they had that 20 second hunt or maybe even a little bit of a ranging hunt, mm-hmm. it might not matter when it comes back. As long as you get called back to the next series, you're yeah. still in the trial. You're still in the trial. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, I, I'm, I'm personally thinking back to a trial a few weeks ago where two of my dogs ran pretty dang good blinds all day. Master tests would have been like the real deal for good. And we didn't get called back. And after I dissected it, it was how they got off the point. It was, you know, technically a cast refusal, second stop, cast him in the water. He gets in the water and he finishes beautifully. But that one instant, you know, and they, that's what they were, they weren't looking for that. And he was out. And, you know, it's, it's been a transition because for the last 10 years of my career, it's been pass fail, get them through it, walk away with an 80, 90, 100% pass rate every weekend. And now it's like, there can only be one winner. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's a totally different feel. Yeah, it's it puts a lot more pressure on you for sure. Yeah. As a pro. Yeah, it's a it's a different different game, but I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it because I feel like at least in the Q level, I've got five to six dogs that on any given day could do it. Whether they do or not on that day, I don't know. But they compete against each other in training where it's like, man, three, four, five days in a row this month, that dog's been so consistent and just getting it. Um, It's been fun. It's been a really neat transition in my career to not transition. That means I'm not doing the other stuff, but new challenge, new challenge. I needed a new challenge for sure. It was fun. Kev, you want to jump? Like, you want to jump into some Q and A's? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. We'll get the ball. I have other questions too, but we'll we'll get a couple Q and A's done. Sounds good. Yeah, uh, we had <clears throat> excuse me a bunch of good ones come in from our Patreon. Uh, so thank you to everybody for that. Patreon.com forward slash Lone Dog Also, we're giving away a free hunt coming up soon. Week, week, week or two. When this comes out, it'll be roughly around that time. That's gonna be awesome, Sharon. Uh, one of our Patreon friends, Sharon, wrote in and asked what the longest distance someone can expect on a watermark or blind. Uh, what might you actually be facing a master test or a derby? What distances? So those are two two different deals. Well, it's yeah, no, it's a good question. But yeah. those, those, like we'll answer each. Sure. Because the master test, I'll answer that one, and you go into the derby one. Sure. I've never ran a derby. Okay. Have you? Many. Yeah. So you answer that one. You're the Derby man. Yeah. <laughs> so the master tests, um, there's a rule. You can read the rule book. I'm not as fluent with the rule book, but I want to say that it's like under a hundred yards on water. Maybe it's 120, but I think land's 120 or 150, water's 120 or 100 yards. So you're going to have anything in that realm. So you're going to probably have one long bird. And two shorter birds. It also could be a double on water. I'm never really concerned about the long water one. I'm always concerned about the splash bird in my face. And I'm sitting still through a big splash. So when folks ask about distances on water, I just look at it and say, your dog will probably, if done well, will have the guts to go and do that. 
it's the splash bird after running another series or two before that where they're getting all jacked up and jazzed and they've got to sit through a 90 yard one a 70 yard one and then oh here comes one and it's 20 feet away and they've got to sit through that that's the one you got to worry more about um and then the concepts that we would see at the master test would be you know down the shores so a dog that has the ability and the training to stay in the water and not get out and run um and then typically in the master test we're going to see stay off the point not get on the point so if there's fingers of land the dog should not be sucked towards the land and they should stay in the water and, and have the guts to go and do that um that's probably what you would see under 120 yards look up the rule book i probably should know it off the top of my head but i don't sucks to suck <laughs> but um that would be my thought kevin uh derbies are a totally different deal yeah definitely um anything goes in a field trial basically you know so distance is not something that uh i would think too much about in terms of well how far can it be i mean any mark could could be under 400 yards doesn't mean it's going to be a 400 yard swim that's that's very unlikely uh fact i would be shocked if i ever saw one but um the swim could be at, at very minimum it could be at least 200 yards you know um and uh it's if you're asking how far does my need my dog need to swim um i would say that you should be your dog should be comfortable swimming couple 250 yards yeah. in the water and but that doesn't mean you rush out there and you get your you know you throw a 250 yard mark for your dog to see if it can swim out there that's not how it works uh, you build your dog up to that. You dogs aren't born with courage. You you help them feel confident about swimming there. A lot of the watermarks we do are designed to help them feel really good about it. You know, um, yeah. not intimidated for sure. Not to push them out there. One of the things that uh, I focused on when with probably in the last three years with the young ones that I've been developing is. Anytime they're not anytime, most times when they're getting a watermark, it's to the end of the pond. So there's no cheating singles. There's no, I'm just, I'm closing my eyes thinking of the ponds that I train on. It's like, I'm looking at the most black, like you're saying, confidence building. He doesn't have, he or she doesn't have to make major decisions. They just have to go and feel okay about going all the way to the end. There's not enough suction to get in and out or anything like that. They just have to feel good about going to the end. And if they can do that, then the next pond will be a little bit bigger and they go to the end of that and they get a little bigger and they go to the end of that. That kind of guts and muscle memory of swim to the end of the pond and feel really cool that they can get there is kind of the, the goal for me versus getting halfway there going, I haven't found it yet. I'm in the middle of no man's land in this pond and now I'm getting scared. That's you don't want that. Yeah, I totally agree with you there. Like I'm when I'm training a dog for water work, um, I think about probably three or four different things that I'm focusing on. One is entries, which usually refers to cheating singles. I'm thinking about egg exits where I'm teaching the dog to get out of the pond in the correct place. Uh, and the other area that I'm working on a lot is confidence. And when I'm working on confidence, I'm not working on an entry into a mm -hmm. pond or an exit out of the pond. I don't need to put pressure on the dog when I'm asking them to swim uh, a, a distance that might be pushing their limits. Um, I want to create confidence. If it's a if it's a a, a courage swim, I'm not going to put any complexity into that. It's about building them up. Yeah, 
Yeah, exactly. It's not saying I'm not doing the other things. I'm just not combining them. I'm just not combining them. Yeah. Yeah. It's just strictly go feel good about yourself and mm-hmm. then be rewarded at the end. I'm looking for success. Yeah. And another thing I will definitely, if I start to see that dog get halfway or maybe even three quarters of the way through that big swim and they start looking around and you can see it kind of confidence dipping, I'm throwing another bird or bumper. I'm, I'm driving them out there or giving them a target to look at. Did you ever do that? I'm, I'm just going to add to that is that uh, when I'm doing watermarks with the young dogs, it's all big white bumpers in the water. Yeah. I want the dog to have a target out there that's going to draw them out there that's front lit. You know, the sun's behind me. It's beaming on the bumper. The bumper looks like a big target out there. Mm-hmm. Um, as I'm building that dog up to do that stuff, I want something to draw them out there to, to sit for them to be able to be swimming out there and go, yep, I see where I'm going. I got this. There's no question. I know what I'm doing. But if it's a bird that's sinking low in the water, and they're not quite sure where they're going in. And they're also faced with a pond that can be intimidating look-wise. Mm-hmm. And the distance of the swim can be uh, intimidating. Uh, that's not a good situation. Right. But that would be, if I were to do that, let's just use that example. If we threw a duck in the water, because it, I would say the the example I would give is, it's a young enough dog where I can't stop them on a whistle and cast them back in if they tried to like cheat all the way around or something after doing a big swim. If I don't have that skill set in and I'm, I'm, well, if this is the real example, I'm using a big white bumper and I'm not using a duck. And so all those things are now kiboshed, but I have had instances where there's some lily pads or enough vegetation and the throw gets caught by the wind and it's drag back. Thank you. I'm like, he just tapped his nose. I'm like, I'm not certain. Thank you. Drag back. <laughs> just jump in, dude. You can just say it. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have, you can interrupt me. I've been in I was training in Northern Ontario when I was doing that. I mean, we had a lot of lily pads and sure. pepper growing in the pond. And so now the dog's on the way out there. Everything looks good. And all of a sudden there's drag back from other birds. Sure. And those lily pads. If anything, it can hit the fan. When it hits the fan, that's when I've got my helper to help that dog. And typically the the pro tip here would be if you've got your bumper in the water, throw one, have your bird thrower throw one on land in line with that bumper and the dog, if you will. If everybody's, unless you're driving, envision what I'm doing here. <laughs> so that dog sees this extra mark, like the fireman drill, and it keeps driving, but in between where that bumper was landing on land and that dog is where it's going to run into the bumper that's in the water. Picking up what I'm putting down. Yeah, so, what else? She asked another one, didn't she? Or no? Nope. All right. Go on to the next one. Uh, uh, our dear friend Caleb says, congrats. Uh, getting a puppy in October. How do you do water intro when it's getting chilly? Real chilly. Pup's going to be a small monster lander. You don't. Yeah. That's my opinion. Kevin's being here. <laughs> <laughs> the other Kevin. <laughs> Just busting balls, but you, the small monster lander could have gone a lab, bud. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, well, well, how cold is cold, Caleb? And I just, I mean, well, the other thing is October. If you're questioning October, it, if it's Caleb, if you're questioning it, then it's too cold. Yeah. That's probably the right answer. Can I add a little to that? Yeah, absolutely. I don't think there's any need to rush introducing a dog to water at all. If you don't introduce your dog to water till they're six months old, that's perfectly fine. Don't think you're losing it. The worst thing you can do is put your dog in a situation where they're going to be intimidated, where they're going to dip into something that they've never dipped into before and feel uncomfortable. 
I want their first experiences to be absolutely awesome mm-hmm. because I don't want to create a situation where a dog all of a sudden has an aversion to water. And if I had to wait two months or three months to get that done, no harm, no foul. That dog is going to advance very quickly once you can get in the water. So my question to add on to your answer would be, what are you doing in the meantime to make sure that once you get to water, it's ready for it? Ton of marks. Thank you. Yeah. Big white Build retrieve drive. <laughs> Build retrieve drive so that, because I would say I've had plenty of six, eight month old puppies that roll into my program that weren't introduced to water. And by God, it is a pain in the butt on my end because, you know, it just, it just is, you know, they've only had land. And so when they put their feet in and they start to lose that buoyancy, they don't have the guts to go for it. So I feel Caleb's question. I feel for him because it's, it's a real concern. I don't want my dog to be afraid of the water and not want the water. So your point is valid. Build that retrieve drive. Make sure that he or she lives for that task because that love is going to overcome the nerves that it might take for a seven month old puppy to go swim. Yeah. I, I remember one dog in particular, uh, a black lab I had very early on. Um, and she was never that excited about getting into the water, but I never forced you. She was my own dog. Mm-hmm. I was a pro at the time, but she was my own dog. And I had been cautioned in the same way I'm cautioning everybody else here. Don't ask your dog to do something that they're uncomfortable with, with respect to the water. And I waited until she finally jumped in on her own. She was six months old. Mm-hmm. I didn't throw bumpers out there trying to coerce her into it. I just waited until one day she was saw the other dogs playing out there and she said, I'm going to get in it. Mm-hmm. That dog went on to be a field champion, U.S. field champion, an amateur field champion, a Canadian field champion, amateur field champion, finished U.S. and Canadian nationals. She was absolutely fine. But it, what if I hadn't waited till right. she was ready? Would she still be that same dog? What if she had developed an aversion to water because I forced the issue early unnecessarily? Don't do it. Yeah, couldn't agree more. We've got plenty of videos on the old YouTubes of my my main my main don'ts. Right, so I'll rip through them real quick. But like, I like that. My main don'ts is cold water. Don't pick them up and carry them in because the first thing they're going to do is get in the water and swim back to shore. And now their experience is going back to shore, not going out into the water wait in there with them. Don't go to a river where there's current and they get swept away. And don't go to a a big lake, like I'm thinking of Lake Ontario, or uh, an ocean, a beach where there's waves crashing and it's loud and scary. It's gentle entry, nice and warm, cool, calm, comfortable, and they feel really good about themselves. Those are my main my main thoughts. I would say anything to add? Just avoid areas where there's a lot of cover. Like if you got tall cattails or there's a lot of cover growing in the water, it's just going to probably cause them to splash and get a little bit nervous so they can't see the shorelines. Clean shorelines are really nice. Good point. Cool. Uh, Monica has an interesting question about force fetch dogs. Would you happen to have any advice about introducing them uh, to retrieving different objects, not necessarily hunting related stuff? So I'm going to add to this question. She joined our Patreon and our force fetch course, and she's doing, gosh, she's going to hate me for forgetting, a border collie and some sort of bulldog breed. I don't, you're looking at me as a No, I know. I'm I'm just, I'm I'm drawing it in. It's like a, it's some bully breed, a pit bull or some bully breed, but she loves training and wants to do different, uh, I don't know, obedient stuff where they have to go and grab things and bring them to her and 
And so she's been like super good about following how I do it. And they've had ups and downs and they're pretty much through it now. And so my guess That's is pretty cool. Yeah, it's bad. To the bone. I knock on wood, nor will I ever force fetch a bulldog. But, uh, I'm proud of her. We, for trying. we had a bulldog that would retrieve. Yeah, but I didn't force it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's kind of cool. Uh, um, so getting them to do it with different objects. Uh, you're asking me whether we need to. Well, I think she has to for ah. the sports that she wants to play with them. Gotcha. Um, I mean, I don't have a problem with it. I mean, if a dog will, you can force fetch a dog to pick up a bird. You can force fetch them to pick up a bumper. You can force them to fetch, fetch up a, a wooden dowel. I mean, there's absolutely no problem with it in my book. Whatever you got to do. Yeah. My thought is 100%. You're just going to reintroduce that new object. So whatever it's going to be. You know, so you see that people make their dogs carry a beer or a hammer or whatever it may be in your competition. Antler, maybe yeah, antler or something. Antler. Yep. You're just going to show them, show them again, make it become a norm. And then I might apply that stem if I need to. But I bet once they kind of figure it out that that command that was once for this and this and this turns into this new object. It'll just, it becomes universal. Yeah. I'm trying, there's a, a training term I can't, it's on the tip of my tongue, but I agree. And, and the other thing I would add to it is, um, you'd like to make it a bit of a game beforehand, like engage yeah. the prey drive, so to speak. If, you know, for lack of a, a better object, uh, you said can of beer. If yeah. you want them to pick up a can of beer, well, then treat it like a toy, toss that can of beer. I mean, you might lose a can of beer, but. Hey, yeah. you always buy another one. Yeah. You know, toss it around, get the dog excited about chasing it, get the prey drive involved, and they're going to pick it up. Um, you know, just because they want to, because they're excited about it first. Yes, that's that's first the making them do first it. First making them. I, I don't think you should make a dog pick up anything first. They should be excited about picking it up. And we don't make a dog pick it up. We we teach them to pick it up, and we teach them to hold it, and then we enforce it with pressure. Correct. Yeah. That would be generalizing. That's the word I was using. We're generalizing that command for other objects than what we originally taught them to do it with. Yes. Would you say it's kind of like, you know, I I teach my dog to jump up in place on the tailgate of my truck, but I also use that to jump up on my couch, on my bed, which you're going to tell me I shouldn't do anyways. But point being like onto the dog stand, onto the whatever, it's jump up onto this. Sure. Yep. Would you say it's kind of similar? Yeah. Or duck hunting wise, you're on a a Momar stand, Mm -hmm. but then I didn't bring my Momar stand and I've got a muskrat, a legit muskrat hut in a swamp. (laughs) We've done that. We've done that. Or a stump, you know, that is now your spot that you have to sit. And when you bring me back a bird, you know, to jump back on that muskrat hut or stump. Yeah. We're just generalizing it. So I'm not going to force them onto the muskrat hut like I would in maybe obedience forcing to place or kennel. You just, hey, buddy, come here, hop, 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 hop. And then after five times, he goes, hmm, I understand. Put two and two together and they get it. Yeah. Generalizing the command. Eric Nilsson had a couple questions here. Um, Spend your workshop. Shout out to the Kevin Chef workshops, baby. Go. Woo. <laughs> after transitions completed, how should an amateur develop a two and two week and four week training program that's balanced out with marks and drills? And how often do you do concepts and training versus wide open marks and simple blinds to balance the dog out? That's a very detailed can you ask it again? You know, I want to slow it down. Yeah, slow it down. My own brain. After transitions completed, how should an amateur develop a two-week and four-week training program that's balanced with marks and drills? Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Kevin's writing it down too. 
smart. <laughs> no, he's way smart. smart. Yeah, we don't do that. We just <clears throat> repeat it 17 times. Uh, and then how often do you do concepts and training versus wide open marks and simple blinds? Okay, that's that's a lot to unpack. There. Yeah, that that's like a that's that's a podcast. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Yeah, that is a podcast. It's uh, a good question. After transition, to me, I'll ask you this, but to me, that means coming off a T pattern, coming off a swim by, learning pattern blinds, learning learning big dog stuff, if you will. Right? That's a transit. To me, a transition dog is not really running blinds, but they are sort of and. But they should be steady. They're done with force fetch. They're picking up good, confident singles. Now they're starting to learn how to handle. Yeah, I think uh, when I think of a post-transition dog, they have, if we want to get down to skills, they've got basic handling skills They in the field. They mm-hmm. can stop crisply on a whist in the field. They can take a cast in a general direction. Uh, they understand to go. Um they can do the same on water. They they tread water very well. They're willing to look at you and wait for direction. That the fundamentally they're sound in the field. The basis is all about making these dogs fundamentally sound in the yard. The transition is about making these dogs fundamentally sound in the field. And now we're at that point where we can start to work on concepts. We can start to work on teaching these dogs to fight fan, uh, standards and um, sorry, not fight standards, but maintain standards in the field, so to yeah. speak. So there's a lot of drill work that went into that. And some of it, a lot of you would know. And I think there's more. It takes more than just, hey, let's get through the double T or the single T and swim by and we're ready to go. Mm-hmm. That's not the case. I think it takes more than that. But at any rate, we know where we're at. And um, we're talking about marks and drills, I think. Or was it marks and blinds? It doesn't matter. Marks and blinds. Yeah. And uh, concepts versus doing things that are more uh, are more relaxing, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So at that stage, we're probably trying to teach the dog more about some standards. We're talking about, if we're talking about water, we're talking about teaching these dogs to get in the water correctly, cheating singles, teaching dogs to get out of the water correctly. That would be two down the shores and a drill that I do is called the angle exit drill, teaching dogs where to get out of the water. Those are all about standards. We're beginning to teach the dog how to fight a crosswind on a mark or a blind. Um, We're also beginning to teach those dog concepts, primarily a punch bird concept or not to return to an old fall. Those are all things that we think about teaching a dog at that stage. And ideally, if we have a two-week training plan, let's just talk about two weeks instead of four weeks. In that two weeks, we want to theme the training a little bit. Meaning, if I'm going to train three days a week or four days a week, I want to cover that particular concept or that particular standard that I'm trying to ingrain about three times. So if I'm going to do a punch bird over the course of two weeks, I would like to do it three times. If I'm going to work on cheating singles, I would like to do it about three times. If I would like to do a shoreline water blind, I would like to do it three times. And by the way, not all in that two weeks, all those things, not all those things. I'm just saying there's yeah, a lot I'm of things saying, I got to train exactly. on. I'm just saying, just but, to specify, it, the first two weeks isn't all these things so, all at once. So maybe let's make it a little bit clear. Let's say we train, do you want to use three or four days? You tell me. I think most people are going to go three days. Okay, let's say we train three days a week. How many setups are we going to do in a single day? Two or three? I think most people are going to say they would do three. Okay, so we have in a in one week we've got three days we're going to train three times that's nine setups mm-hmm. per week so we've got a total of 18 setups 
let's just say 15 to 18 setups for a nice number. Yeah. I'm going to mark that down on paper, 15 slots, 15 to 18 slots. I want to work on shoreline blinds. I'm going to plug shoreline blinds into three of those 18 slots. I want to work on cheating singles. I'm going to plug that into three of those 18 slots. I'm burning up slots as I do this. Sure. Okay. So I might pick three or four different things that I'm going to train on. But this person here, Eric, who's very smart, says, Kevin, what do I do? I need to do wide open triples. And I think what Eric's really saying is, how do I balance this out? I'm asking my dog to do these things that are mentally taxing. Mm -hmm. We might be making corrections. So they're emotionally taxing. They might be big swims or something that's physically taxing. So all of these things are draining the dog's energy resources and uh, momentum, confidence. All of those things are starting to deteriorate. We might have used up 12 or 9 to 12 slots. Now we got to start thinking about plugging things in there that are going to keep the dog confident, Mm -hmm. keep the dog's momentum up. And that's where we get into, you know, opening up the marks without putting things in into them where the dog has to fight a factor like make a decision to enter a pond correctly or fight a crosswind. We don't put them in a situation where they might switch or go back to an old fall. That's why we're opening them up. We don't do a water blind next to a shoreline where they might be tempted to land grab on the water blind. We do them just across a small piece of water with no shorelines on either side of the water blind. We just... We do things that take the training out of the marks of the blinds so that they can feel like they can do things, so that they do feel capable and their confidence is going. I call them therapy. You can call them therapy marks, you can call them therapy blinds. But I think people get to that stage of training, especially at the all-age level, and they forget that they have to do them. They forget that they constantly have to monitor body language and how the dog is feeling. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, that's so important if we want to keep these dogs happy. happy. Yeah. Happy, you know, trained yet wanting more. Let me add it. I got this. Yeah. That was, we had a podcast with Clark Kennington years ago now, and we were talking about the super retriever series and the super retriever series is so to me, like looking at it, it's stressful. There's so much that those dogs have to do and accomplish and think about and mark and, it's just bananas. And one of the things that he brought up from doing it is back in the day, he drilled a lot. He There was pressure involved. There was this and that. And all these things added up into a, a overthinker of a dog. And as he developed as a trainer, the more dogs that he had worked through that were comfortable, them being comfortable, those were the ones that were being more consistent and winning. So I feel like the exactly what you just described to him. Have your list, plug in the training sessions that are going to be mentally taxing. doesn't have to be pressure related. When when we say pressure, we don't necessarily mean you're pushing a button on the e-collar. We mean mental pressure. Hey, I've got to think here. I see a, a corner of a pond and I've got a decision to make. In that dog's brain, that's stress, that's pressure, that's a decision. And if they make the wrong one, they know that that's not a good one, but they still make it sometimes, or they make the right decision. But in that moment, they're still thinking a lot. So that balancing act of maybe a therapy marks or therapy blinds where they just, I don't really have to think. I'm just looking across a pond that's 30 yards, and I got to get out there and swim across it and boop, 
all of a sudden there I am. And then it's maybe a 50 yard run afterwards and they turn around and they don't have to think about cheating because it's blatantly obviously get back in all of a sudden your balancing act of you're down the shore, you're two down the shore concept that you have been plugging in over the last two weeks, you get a little relaxation and they feel good about this decision today. And then you see when you go back and visit on your third session of your two down the shore, they feel more comfortable comfort. I'm okay with pressure mental pressure, mental stress and challenging them. But I'm, I do feel like maybe I look at my sessions where it's like two things might be mentally stressful. One's going to be more of a gimme or two are going to be a gimme for this dog. And one's going to be a little bit tougher. Like that to me is how I'm trying to create that comfort zone of just go feel good about yourself on something. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I And there are certain things that I feel they've got to have more easy than hard. Like if we're talking about a water blind, I think for every hard water blind you do, you should be thinking about three or four easy water blinds. Yeah. Um, those things that dogs are really intimidated by do more easy than hard. Yeah. And then the other thing I would add is, you know, so we talked about a two-week training plan. And, and as Eric pointed out, he said, what about four weeks? When you finish or you're approaching finishing that two weeks, your next two-week training plan doesn't cover the same things because there's just too many things to cover. That's where you're, you you need to track things. What did I cover in the last two weeks? Well, in the next two weeks, I've got to cover different things to make sure I'm hitting everything. If I did down the shore marks, I'm not going to do them in the following two weeks. I've got mm-hmm. to do something different. Anyway, that's all I could have to add on that. That's, that's good. My last piece, I had this conversation with a, a awesome lady at the hunt test this weekend. Um, long story short, her son bought a puppy from us. It was it's their first duck dog for a family. I think he was like 15 or 16 when they got it. He trained it all himself. Mom and dad would go throw marks for him. Great freaking family. She fell in love with training with her son and his dog. She bought herself a dog. So now they're a mother-son team going out to hunt test together. Super cool. She did not pass this weekend. I kind of went up to her. We sat, we BS. I kind of busted chops a little bit, relaxed her a little bit and said, here's what I saw. Here's what I think you should work on. Da, 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 da. And she made a comment about balancing the dog's attitude. And I'd like your opinion. If he's feeling stress or pressure, his ears go back. He does this, he does that. I don't want him to be sad. So we do a lot more fun stuff to try and balance it out. I could be wrong, but I'm looking at the long game. So if I have a dog and I trust the process, what because I've done this a lot and I've done it with a lot of dogs, I feel like I trust my process and how I treat dogs and the timing of my corrections and all these things that I'm not looking for next week to be better. I'm looking at five months from now to be better. And what does that dog look like two months from now running blinds first next week? So if he's not feeling fully confident today, that doesn't mean that today I have to do stuff that pumps him all the way up and gets him right back right this moment. And that makes me feel better about myself and he feels better about himself. I'm okay with using opportunities to teach him if he's blatantly giving me the middle finger to make, okay, so maybe he doesn't look super fun for a week or two weeks. But then all of a sudden he starts going, boy, I'm starting to understand that there are consequences to my actions and that there are rules about how to be handled. And all of a sudden, I, because I trust the process, I see that confidence flick. So he may not be pumped about it for the first two weeks or three weeks, but then all of a sudden he goes, I've got it. If I sit quick, if I look at her, 
if I take the correct cast, I get what I want. I get that bumper or that duck. And all of a sudden you see that momentum change of and confidence pick back up. So you have to trust the process that with what you just described with Eric's two-week question and giving some therapy things and balancing active teaching, I'm okay with a session where they go, that dog looks like, I'm not sure of myself. That's okay. Did he learn something? Did you learn something? Were you fair in how you handled it? Cool. Because tomorrow you're going to address it or three days from now, you're going to address it again and see if he learned. And then a month from now, and by the way, next spring, when you're trying again at a senior test, where is he at? Probably more confident, probably looking the way you want him to look, but he's doing it how you want him to do it. It's a long game. We're not trying to get there in two weeks. Yeah, I, 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 would, I agree with you on that. Um, we, you and I have a little bit more experience than the average person, so we, we do trust the process because we've seen the process work. Right. Um, but some of the things I would share is that, uh, number one, this sport that we're participating in, whether it's hunt test or field trials, is in essence, in a lot of ways, a huge obedience competition. Yeah. Right. We want dogs not just to retrieve, but we want them to do it in a certain way. And when we're doing a blind retrieve, that is all about control. Mm-hmm. Um, when we want them to hold the line for certain reasons, without getting into too deep into the weeds here, that is all about making disciplined, the dog making disciplined decisions. And the reason why they do that is one, because we show them, two, because we're fair, three, because we say, if you don't do it the way I want you to do it, there's a consequence for it. And so we can expect that dogs are not going to be thrilled every day Mm -hmm. about what we're asking them to do or what we require them to do. But once they understand that there's a standard that they must maintain, then they settle into that and go, oh, okay, if I if I sit quickly to the whistle, as you said, I don't get corrected. If I get in the water where I'm supposed to, I don't get corrected. If I take a cast in the right direction, I don't get corrected. Once they understand the standards, and we've been fair about teaching it to them, because we would always show them first. We wouldn't correct them the first time, or maybe the first several times they go to cheat around a piece of water, or they don't take a cast. We're going to use attrition. We're going to handle them. We're going to do all these things. We're going to make sure we put the bumper in the water where they can see it. There's some teaching that goes on first. Mm-hmm. We're fair. And when they decide not to um, meet the standard, when we, we have been completely fair, then we we do legitimately have uh, a reason to make a correction. And I think dogs understand that. Mm-hmm. And once you make several corrections, they start to, you know what? It's just easier. To it's do. more comfortable. <laughs> yeah. And you know what? I'm just going to do it that way. It just requires a little extra work, but it's not uncomfortable. Correct. And then you see that light bulb moment. And then you see that light bulb moment. And then the ears go back the way you want, you know, the owner wants it to look. Like, it's okay to be uncomfortable. One of my, our buddies, Ethan, we were talking about him at dinner tonight. He made a comment about stress. And if you want your muscles to grow, if you want to be a better runner, if you want to be a better lifter, if you want to be a better athlete, we all have to put ourselves and our muscles in in stress. And you're stretching them and you're pushing them and breaking them down a little bit. If you do too much, you're going to pull something. You're going to get injured. If you don't do any, then you don't grow. You don't get better at your sport. You don't get bigger and stronger and faster. So there's that that balancing act of doing just enough pulling and stretching and breaking down and rebuilding and allowing that opportunity to rebuild. And then you get a little stronger and then a little bit more. And then you give it time and it'll grow again. And it's not overnight. You're not going to have a dog that's 
running blinds overnight. It's just, I did T-pattern, it should run blinds. That's not how it works. Should we move on? I would just like to add one more thing to this. Go because for it. I think just to make sure people have some context and perspective here. I've said that it's okay to put make corrections on dog that we've been fair with, we've shown. And w- the one last thing everybody has to remember is that if we do use pressure to insist on a standard, mm-hmm. that if we make a couple of corrections and we don't see the right response, then it's time to pull back and say, okay, either A, this dog doesn't understand, B, I'm not communicating effectively, C, I need to simplify more, or something like that. Great addition. Because... That dog is understanding. I do not need a bigger stick when an appropriate stick isn't working. Great point. And that's the only thing I, I would add to that. That's an awesome, awesome addition. Another great way to support the show, and if you dig it and you want to rep it, it's LoneDuckOutfitters.com. We got hats, t-shirts, hoodies, all that good stuff. Even if you got a little lone duckling, a little baby on the way, you can get that onesie as cute as can be. Little kids gear. But we've also got other things like bumpers, launchers, e-collars, anything you need to train a dog, you can find it at LoneDuckOutfitters.com. We're here to supply you so that you and your dog can get ready for duck season. All right, Kevy, give it to us. Eric Nilsson again. Let In teaching, swim by, if you could discuss some common pitfalls that we may experience and try to avoid, uh, and how do you know when swim by is truly complete and do you revisit it each year as a tune-up? Okay, I'm going to jump in here. Love it. Uh, the biggest pitfall that I see people fall into is not working hard enough or long enough on a perfect stall or sit in the water if people don't know what a stall is. That is the most important skill that your dog will get out of the swim-by is the stall. You cannot do advanced training without a great stall in the water. That's, I don't even want to say anything else because I think that is the most important part of swim by. Uh, and what was the second part of Eric's question? It was a couple of two tree parters. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> see, the, the tough part here is I'm also a bad reader, Eric. So don't, don't feel bad like I'm, I'm saying this uh, poorly, but um, common pitfalls. And then how do you know when you're totally done? Oh, totally. Done. And then also, do you revisit it annually as like a little tune up? Right. Um, just to add a little bit more to the stall, what is a perfect stall? Just so everybody has a good image in their head. When you blow a whistle, the dog spins around immediately on that whistle, spins around immediately on that whistle. They do not drift laterally, meaning to the left or right. They don't drift in toward you. They hold their position in the water for the most part, and their eyes are on you and they're comfortable doing it. Those are all the components of a good stall. So if you're moving on saying, oh, that's good enough, you know, the dog's not quite stopping, maybe he's auto-casting, maybe he'll only hold it for a couple of seconds, you are doing yourself a great disservice. Okay, so the question was, uh, when is it? when do you feel you're done? I want to make sure that um, one, the dog will get from one end of the pond to the other when you're asking them to do the swim by in one or two casts. It doesn't have to be perfect. Uh, but I also want to make sure that along the way that I'm getting some appropriate responses to maybe some corrections that I'm making. Like if the dog is doing a swim by and they look over at me and I see them look over at me, well, that's essentially a pop. They're questioning, do I have to keep going? If I make a force correction, 
do they react appropriately to that force correction? In other words, if they look at me and I press the button and I holler over, do they pick up a little bit of speed, look toward the exit and go for it? That's telling me that, yes, they understand how to react to pressure. If I make a correction because I blow a whistle and they don't stop and I blow another whistle and make a correction, sorry, if I blow a whistle and they don't stop and I blow another whistle and I make a correction and they stop and they hold their position, yes, that's another good box you can check off. Thirdly, um, I want my dogs to be able to pick up a bumper from the back pile and when they start to return back to me in the water, that would be the center pile, when they start to return back to me and I blow a whistle, they push back on the water and go into a stall and then I can give them an overcast toward the exit and they take it. I'm there. But the most important part of that and what I was saying was they push back on the water and go into a stall. If they don't put the brakes on and just continue to swim in toward me, I'm not finished. Because in a real life scenario, when I'm asking a dog to do a swim by, they will be on the return from a watermark. Mm-hmm. And that's what they will need to do. They will need to respond to a whistle as they're swimming toward me. They will need to put the brakes on, go into a stall, and then I can ask them to do an over. It's That's the point at which I feel I'm done swim by. But there's all Always the swim by review after that still must be done. And then the last question was, and then I'll let you respond, Bob, because mm-hmm. you probably have some information. Last question was, do I review it annually? Yes. Every year in the spring, it's the first thing I do when I get back into the waters to swim by review. Yeah. And we reviewed that in, I think, our last podcast together. Oh, yeah. When I was south last winter, like the winter break, you know, we did over. a full deal, yeah. full podcast. Check it out in the show notes. But yep. Very. Really on informative. The only thing I would add, uh, you hit everything nail on the head for me as well. Um, the only thing I would add is I want to I want to be able to give an over a let let's just say leftover dog takes my leftover gets out of the pond gets his bumper I'm going to again cast him leftover and he runs away from the pond on land. I want to be able to stop him and I want to give him a right over and he makes a beeline and jumps back in the water how I want him to for the same reasons of what you said of stopping in the water and being able to cast on the return. Remember you were saying, send Mm -hmm. to the back pile and stop him and he back pedals and treads, and then you can cast. It's the same reason. If they go to cheat a bank on a return from a mark or a blind, I want to be able to stop them and get, and almost as soon as they hear that whistle, they go, my bad. I should have gotten back in the water and I can get that cast and they sploosh back in the water. To me, that is a huge part of that cheating singles and and the concept of being in the water is a good place. And or if we're doing a two down the shore and they get out, you know, I, I'll we don't need to get into this. But like if they get out early and I've tried to show them and have shown them in the past and I've taught and taught and taught, I'm going to let them make that mistake. You want to get out? Go ahead. See how it goes for you. And if I haven't properly done for me that piece of swim by where they understand to get back in the water. I give that cast back in the water on that two down the shore. They're going to run the bank or have four paws in the water, but not really in the water, that kind of crap. If I cast you into the water, you sploosh back into the water and go from there. So that would be my only addition is all the things he said. And then my last piece is when they are out of the water, I can cast them in the water. They jump in and swim all the way across the swim by pond. Good addition. Yeah. I think that's a good point. Cool. We had uh, a good question uh, come in through Instagram uh, from Amy Dunn asking to 
please explain the different levels of the retriever coach workshops? Oh, okay. Well, there are uh, six different workshops that I offer. The most popular one is the personalized training workshop, which I mentioned earlier. Everybody fills out a questionnaire, tells me what their strengths and weaknesses are, and we really focus on them. Uh, I do a fundamentals or what most people think of as a basics workshop, walking you right through everything from tree training through force fetch, force to a pile, three-handed casting, advanced tea, those types of things. We do an intermediate skill building workshop, which is how you take those skills that your dog learned in the yard to the field. How do you transition to the field? And so we cover a bunch of drill work and some marking scenarios that will help you prepare your dog for the field making sure that your fundamentals are sound in the field as well. I do a water training workshop. I do a blind training workshop. I The last one I do is one where uh, I help people who are running hunt tests who want to transition to maybe running a qualifying, covering things that you need to, where you need to fill in the gaps, so to speak, that would help you make that transition to the field trial world. It's pretty... Uh... There's a lot to though. Yeah, that's, say, that's pretty. That's pretty thorough. Well, Amy, sounds like you could be at every single one for the next two years. I, I do them all, you know. Yeah. And people, different people, will are interested in different ones. Absolutely, that's pretty cool. Now, I wrote a note down to add to Amy's question, and it said, "And your fetch program." So Kevin created a online training program as well. You know, if someone were to want to dive into that, how in depth is that? Where Where are you at with that? Uh, thank you for asking. Um, the Fetch program is something that uh, I've been working on since 2014, believe it or not. I had this idea that I wanted to create an app that would help people train a retriever. And over the years, it's developed into, which I launched actually just this past February. Um, it, it is all of the fundamental training and all of the intermediate training um, mapped out in about 30 plus modules where every module has a what you need to know section and a procedure section. It is a step-by-step how-to in the procedure section, but the what you need to know section is, you know, these are the things you need to think about before you're starting. This is what can happen when you do this drill. When these things happen, this is how you should react because that's what people need to know. You need to know why you're doing it, what can happen, and how to react. Correct. That's in the what you need to know section. It's all written instruction, diagrams, videos to, to get you through through those things. It's also an advanced uh, training program where we're, I'm covering marking concepts like punch birch, check down birds, equidistant marking, ABCD drills, cheating singles, uh, my angle exit drill. There's a whole bunch of myriad of, of drills and marking um, material where, again, it's covered in video uh, diagrams and information, written information that you can cover, how you run it, what can happen, how you should react, mm-hmm. those types of things. I do a webinar once a month uh, where I cover different topics. I do two live Q&As a month where you can send your question, just like you've done here. Mm-hmm. Listen in uh, to other people's questions, get, get more about the philosophy of training, the how-tos of training, and then I also do training tips on a regular basis. And I know that's a lot. But finally, the, the best part is, <laughs> I think, is you get access to me. Mm. So if you're training and you have a problem or you're covering the material and it's not working, you get to say, hey, Kevin, you know, you, through the, through the uh, platform, you get to 
ask me a question, Kevin, I, I've done, I've done A, B, and C, but it's not working. What do I need to do? Or I need help think, uh, figuring out what my training program should look like or, or whatever. I'm, sure. I'm here to help you. You've got me at your disposal to ask questions. Very cool. Um, so it's, it's, it's a system. It's not just a training program. It's a complete system to help you be a, a retriever trainer yourself. Very cool. Yeah. That's pretty, the workshops are super in depth, man. That's being I, my biggest thing is I do very similar with our Patreon. So people can send videos, I can help them and whatever, but there is still invaluable resource of you sitting there with me and my dog in live action. Try this, try this, move here, move there. Did you see this? How did the dog react to that? So I think people who can afford it or are near it or whatever can get to one of these workshops or seminars that is invaluable and will give you plenty of things to work on as well. But in the meantime, if not, these online programs are the real yeah. deal. Can I mention one more thing? Sure. You can do whatever you want. This is your show, baby. <laughs> yeah, dude. Yeah, right. Um, I, I just like to mention that uh, you know, enrollment for the Fetch program is it's only open for a couple of weeks, a few times a year. Really? Oh, really? People. Yeah, it's not open all the time. You can only get in during certain periods. Our next enrollment period's coming up. Uh, I think the beginning of October, probably around the first of October. Okay. And so keep your eyes open. If you're interested, go to www.retrievercoach.com and click on the fetch tab. So maybe what we can do again in our show notes is if you can look that up and send that to us, because sure. we've got like two weeks until this will air, I think we'll put it in the yeah. show notes so that if someone wants to jump in, they'll, they'll have it there and know it and can do it. Gotcha. That'd be good. Thank you. Cool. All right. Let's do like two or three more quickies. Or I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm having fun. I there is no quick too. question. So I'm not in. <laughs> no, yeah, I'm I don't just know saying quick ones, but uh, Matt Michael had a question. Matt Michael, two first names. Oh, that might be his last. I don't know. I didn't ask him. <laughs> that wasn't part of the question. Uh, he has a small gun dog kennel uh, and recently he's getting into AKC testing. He's curious about the best prep that he can do for master tests. Yeah, he just pointed at me. I'm stretching <laughs> out. Um, the best prep. Train. You're really going to hurt yourself thinking about this one. Nah, I'm just thinking it's not about the prep. It's not a, a quick tip. It's making sure that your dogs are underwhelmed at the event. So make sure that the things you're doing in training, the, the challenges, the difficulty of your training is harder than what they'll see at the event. So when they get to the event, you and your dogs feel like they've got it, right? So it's like the kid who is 15 playing basketball with the 18-year-olds. When he's 18, he's going to be kicking all the other 18-year-olds' butts because he's been doing it for years. So if you think about that as your training setups, you're not looking at a master test like I described in, I think, Sharon's question of the distance of mark yeah, like, yeah, yeah. oh i check this box he can do a 110 yard watermark i checked this box he can run a down the shore blind it's putting all the pieces of the puzzle together good obedience in the holding blind good obedience on the line sitting and honoring those are like the simplest things those are the, the ones... simplest yeah but they're how people lose yep i don't want it to be me. Yeah. Those are things we can work on every day, all day. Um, having your dog have a very good comfortability in the concepts they're going to see. I mean, we kind of, there's another question that might pop up whether Mike Kevin asks it or not. 
is the poison birds. And you had said, well, you know, in the years I did cues, I had never seen a poison bird or maybe once, right? You know, whether I see it or not on this weekend's master test, my dogs should be prepared for go get one bird, you know, see three birds fall, go get one, no off, run a blind, then pick up the other two. It happens. And that's the point of the being underwhelmed. I don't want it to go to the test day and go, we've never done that. Mm-hmm. They've never, they've done that twice. We, they should be very well versed and mature in that stuff. One of the things I notice when when I come up and do some training stuff uh, with you is that a lot of times there's really no difference between what the dogs see at a master test and a regular day training in the fields. There's really no difference. So that you just get up to the line, you do your thing. Yeah, but I would there. But there the is there is, is no. I understand. Set, my is, setups are way harder than what they're going to see at the weekend test. That's why I'm saying they're yeah. going to be underwhelmed. So whatever I'm teaching, the concepts I'm teaching, I'm also, another thing, and then Kevin wants to jump in, mm-hmm. is I my setups, like what I'm training on today, was not a master test. I didn't go to my field today and go, we're going to do a walk-up and a long bird and a short bird. It had nothing to do with what, um, I'm not training for a master test. I'm training the dog. We ran tight behind the gun today we ran through old falls today we i mean those are the concepts we ran blinds under the arcs we those are concepts that i was teaching today but they weren't in a triple and two blinds does that make sense mm-hmm. that makes sense to you yeah it does so that would be my advice train above what you're gonna see make sure your dog is super confident and you're super confident in the concepts that they'll see go ahead and add to it uh, I, I agree with you, like in the lead up to that sort of maybe week before the event time, you know, as I said, you've got your two week tra- uh, training plans, you're putting them together, you're making sure you're flowing through all of the things you need to cover. Uh, but as I'm approaching that week before the event, I want to make sure that my number of things are happening to one that marking accuracy is a top priority. So, because as you said, if you go to the field trial and I know we're not talking about a field trial, but it's very similar when you go to hunt test. If my dog is not marking accurately, I'm going to have a hunt. Mm -hmm. So that could be a problem. So I want to make sure that I'm doing a lot of singles Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe some marking drills to make sure that my dog is marking accurately and that I'm not focusing on the line to the retrieve so much during that week before the event. So in other words, I'm not going to do cheating singles. I'm not going to do making sure the dog's fighting a wind on the ret- you know, on, on the way out to a mark. Um, because when I start focusing on the line to the retrieve, the dogs stop marking. They're thinking about every step they take as opposed to getting to the destination and finding the bird precisely where they think it is. So singles without a lot of factors in them. I'm also thinking about, I want the dogs to be confident putting a multiple together. So I am going to be throwing some multiples, but they're going to be wide open. So I don't have any concepts in there. Again, I don't want the dog to be falling into traps like switching and, and, um, uh, going back to an old fall because I don't want them concerned about those types of things. I should have done that training two weeks ago or three weeks ago. Mm-hmm. I want them looking at a triple, seeing a triple being thrown and feeling like, I got this. Mm-hmm. I can put together a triple. And the other thing is by w- running those triples, you are practicing the mechanics of making sure your dog sees all the birds by moving around when you need to. 
you're also making sure that your dog is comfortable with those mechanics and they're not jumping out ahead of you because as you pointed out, a dog has to be solid on the line. They can't be moving forward. And when you start firing up not one bird, not two birds, but three birds, you're liable to see something that you want to address in terms of behavior on the mat. I want them to be solid on the mat. I want them to feel comfortable putting together multiple. I want them to be marking accurately. Those are the things that I think about in terms of marking. I don't know if we want to cover blinds as well, but I think they just need to sit down when you blow the whistle and go to the general vicinity when you cast them in that general vicinity. And so I would speak to, I would add what I would do. It would be one, blinds across the marks because I want to make sure those dogs are under control and scent mm-hmm. and in situations where they are likely to get out of control around a holding blind in the field, you know? Yep. Um, and I would say throw yourself, I call it a handler blind, at least once every couple of weeks and probably right before the trial, throw yourself, make sure you set yourself up a blind where you have to negotiate a tight corridor so that you are forcing yourself to blow whistles when you need to. You're not losing the dog behind a mound or a hay bale or behind some bushes. Practice that. You don't run that for your dog. You run that for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. And I think line time, you know, for someone like this, who's just getting into it, without overrunning your dogs and putting them into test-wise situations, I think you you have to buck up and do it too and get comfortable and get those nerves out and get comfortable doing it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking of poison birds, uh, in field trial, Jordan asks, in field trial tra- training, how often should I run poison birds? My dog's two and a half and ran one in a qual. And we, so we kind of talked about this a little bit earlier and Kevin mentioned that he, back in the day, he never saw it. That's interesting. But I hear they're becoming more, more, more commonplace these days. They're more trendy. Which could be trendy. For the last cue that Kevin has <laughs> ran. <laughs> oh, my, my yeah, Kevin has yeah. ran. I yeah. have not. <laughs> uh, I don't know. What do you, um, so. I think every, you have to look at every dog as, as an individual when it comes to poison birds. Some dogs are very attracted to them. Others are not. And if you run too many of them, it can cause them to start to abandon marks or overrun check down birds and that sort of thing. So you've really got to ask yourself, does my dog need another poison bird um, before you start running them? And uh, when I'm doing poison birds, I like to do them in a three-peat scenario where you set up one mark and you do three separate blinds that are run from different locations. You're sort of crisscrossing the lines adjacent to the poison bird and you're just teaching them the communication that goes into running a poison bird, like no dead bird here. And then you point them in the direction of the blind, so to speak, and then run the blind. And then you move a little and you run another blind in the very same fashion. You throw, re-throw the poison bird, use the communication, you do no dead bird here and you point them at the blind. It's a different blind and you run it and you do that three times. And um, again, it's about gauging how much your dog needs it. Obviously, the closer the poison bird is to you, the easier it is, the further the poison bird is out there and the tighter it is, the harder it is to get get past those poison birds. So uh, that's all I can add to that. Yeah. Uh, we, My buddies and I talk every day. I've got a, two other trainers that Every single day, all day long, we're talking to each other, motivating each other, busting each other's chops, all that stuff. And this has been a a discussion, especially leaning up towards Master National, where I think this year they're going to, I personally think they're going to throw everything in the kitchen sink at us. I think they're 
all talking about cutting numbers. I think they're all talking about AKC making it more difficult on us to uphold a standard and da 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 da. da. So what are we going to see? You know, I think we're going to see some sort of poison bird or um, some sort of triple where we have to pick up a bird, know them off the other two, run a blind, then pick up the other two. I think we're going to see a lot of it. I have two boys that are think for themselves, very confident, hard driving. And I, I think they're going to need, even though they do it really well in training, I'm not going to get lax on practicing that poison bird. I have one female that's a little bit softer. And when I say no bird here, she can kind of like go, dang, okay, I got to run a blind. As soon as I kick her loose, she gets back into her groove and runs a beautiful blind and ever, all is good. But you can see her go, dang, I kind of wanted that thing. And, and then we're off and running. To your point, she doesn't need as many maybe as those boys do. She's well versed in them, but I don't want that attitude. I got to balance it a little bit more. I've got an older Chesapeake. That dog needs way more fun stuff and less no birds. You know, and then when I see it at Master National, I'm going to hope that she listens to me type of deal. But if I do that in training, then all the fun of training is going to be taken out and her attitude is going to go down. Therefore, her marking ability is going to go down. Her work ethic to get in the water where she belongs goes down. Those kind of that kind of dog. So I've got to balance her attitude. Um, old Memph, who's in the downstairs right now, she understands it, but she doesn't train like the other ones. She's rusty. I probably got to repractice that with her. Um, so each individual dog, I'm thinking about it, but for, at least for me with master nationals, it's in the back of my head as with me playing in the Q game. I just hope that what I've been doing there, these dogs whole lives, if I were to see it in a queue, I'd be okay. I think if I would, I don't know the answer. If I was only a field trial trainer, I don't know. I've just, I make my bread and butter running master tests and then we're just having fun doing this Q stuff. I think you're the way you're talking about it makes perfect sense. I don't think a, a field trial trainer would change what you're doing. Okay. Good deal. That makes me feel better. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What else I mean, you got? You're treating every dog as an individual and that's what we're supposed to do. Yeah. Which is hard to do sometimes. It is. We get caught up in the moment going, oh, I want to run my dog on that when it's really the wrong thing to do. Yes. That would be another piece of advice, which we talked about earlier of training groups. Just because they're doing that with your training group, doesn't mean you and your dog have to do it. You can manage the situation and do it a little differently to make you and your dog successful. What else you got, bud? So last one here is from the outskirts. Uh, what should I do for a dog that has a very sloppy hold but knows the fetch command? Go ahead. I'm happy to answer that. Go for it. Uh, sloppy hold. I mean, I think when people say sloppy hold, what they're saying is my dog's going to return and they drop the bird and then they put their nose on it and it's like they're having a hard time picking it up or they get to the edge of the water and then they spit it out and they they shake off or they always look like they're adjusting their hold on the return it's stuff like that and all those dogs are doing is delaying the process of bringing the bird back to you mm -hmm. they are not having a hard time holding that bird they are the or bumper or bumper they're simply delaying delivering that bird if it's a bird, it's because they want to keep it. It's a source of food. Eyes like we're putting a steak in their mouth every day and they're just, we're saying, but don't chew it. It's mine. 
and they're going, how can I get this bird? Mm-hmm. Same with a bumper. It could be it, the other reason why they might be delaying bringing it back is they want to delay the process of getting on to the next part of the training test, whatever that is. That's what I was thinking. It's like it work pressure related work ethic. Right. Yeah. So let's not look at it from a hold problem standpoint. Let's look at it from an obedience standpoint where the dog's just delaying coming back to you. Mm-hmm. If they are putting the bird down or they're dropping it and they're mucking around with it, press the button and say, here, it's that simple. If you up your standard in terms of what you, how you require them to get back to you once they've got the got to the retrieve and demand that they come back as quickly and as uh, without delay, you're going to start to see them uh, not jump drop that bumper anymore, or that bird anymore. That's my that's my two cents. That's a hundred percent my two cents. I I would imagine we're seeing it for me. I see it more with the bumpers. I'm going to dissect it a little more because that's what we're here for. I think that they're all bumpers are created in equal. They're not equal. So there I have some, you know, that are three dollars that that poor work ethic dog with a mediocre hold that's thinking if the faster I get back to him, the faster I gotta go do another one. Is that kind of what you're thinking too? Yeah. Right. So they'll it'll be sliding out of their mouth. And they'll just allow it to slide out of their mouth. And as soon as it falls on the ground, the boom, they're grabbing it because they know better, right? If like you could possibly spend $12 and get a really good bumper or $30 and get the gunner bumper, shout out to our podcast sponsor, right? And all of a sudden, because of how that bumper is shaped and the ability to grip it takes it away. Sometimes I'm going to digress big time for a second. Sometimes I think we could create a problem when maybe there isn't one. So if I'm con, it, like, let's take your advice for an example. Same advice I'd give someone. Indirect pressure here. Every time they drop that bird or bumper, I'm going to give it the not a fetch command or hold. It's here. That could create other problems when maybe if we did something else, such as like, a, I mean, this isn't the real answer. Like it's, it's, it's a cop out. It's a little bit of a bandaid. But if you've got the $3 bumpers that are super slippery and you've got this deal with this dog, maybe a different bumper might help you. If it doesn't, then we need to go back and revisit. I also think that so many folks that come to our seminars don't actually have a good force fetch base. They think they do, but they don't. Not to my standard, at least. They better not drop it. If they do, it's getting picked up real quick. So... I think you have to make sure that we're looking in the mirror and saying, what are my standards? How, how am I, how am I, how are me and my dog as a team on this like aspect of our training? If you think it's an 80 out of a hundred, well, I can tell you right now that 80 out of a hundred isn't good enough in my book. No, that's not how you, it was good enough well, for my high school career, but not here in dog training. Yeah. That would have made the fridge in our house. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Mom and dad would have been proud as hell of me, but, uh, but to me, like, the, okay, let's use that as an, an analogy. I understood that getting the bare minimum uh, was going to get my stuff on the fridge when Kelly's getting a 95 and it's like, well, you know, you could have got on 98, Kel. You know, so if that dog understands that giving really you 80, going back in therapy here, this yeah. is like digging deep roots. But the point I'm trying to make is if that under, if that dog understands that if I give you 80% and that's good enough to get belly rubs and pats on the back, then he's only going to give you 80%. If you hold them to a higher standard, which Kevin alluded to, indirect pressure of a little here with some stem, and all of a sudden that dog picks it up and delivers beautifully to hand, now you understand that the dog does understand that the faster I get back to you with less sloppiness, nothing bad happens and life is all good again. 
these are all things, but I would, I would revisit and think innerly in internally on how your force fetch went. I would think about what bumpers you're using, because if they're the cheapos, you could be an easy fix. If you still have that problem, then I would do indirect pressure and I would make it less fun to be dropping and playing with that bumper or duck on the way back. That's kind of all I got. Anything you want to jump in on that? A little bit of polishing on my answer. Um, So if that dog is coming back and they're sloppy with hold and they drop it on the ground um, and you make a correction and you say here and they leave the bumper behind, don't worry about it. You, you don't, that dog does not need to go back and pick up that bumper. The lesson they need to learn in that moment is that they only have a limited amount of time to get back to you. And so that, or, or let me back up a little bit. If you stop the dog because they drop it and then you cast them back out at it and mm-hmm. say fetch, now the message is confusing because Super. your message was supposed to be, hey, you only have a limited amount of time to get back to me. And if you ask them to go get it, now you're saying, oh, no, no, you don't have a limited amount of time. Go back there and pick that up. It's, it can be confusing. So it, as you alluded to in one of our other conversations earlier, it's a process in order to get these dogs to come back quickly with the bumper without dropping it or the bird without dropping it. The moment they drop it and you press the button and you say here, because they're probably going to stop and pick it up or want to mess around with it if, if, if it's a bird. And what they learn in that specific moment is they don't have time to do that. Yeah, They get back to you, you good dog, put them up. You walk out and pick up the bumper, have the dog pick up, or sorry, have the uh, the bird thrower pick up the bird, and it's done. And now you move on to the next day, and hopefully, maybe yeah. you might have to make another correction, maybe you don't. But one of the things that dog is thinking about on that next retrieve is, I don't have time to muck around. Yeah. I need to make sure that I'm holding firmly on this thing, that I don't put the bird down to the bumper to, 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 to adjust my hold, because I don't have time for it, and it's going to end up costing me a correction. Yeah. Or what they want is the bird, right? Like it costs the them bird. The, the bird in their mouth. Yeah. So it that can go sideways on you. This happened to me the other day. Um, and actually one of my employees was asking why I did it. This is It's the exact scenario. Dog's dinking around. He understands what I'm asking of it. And so I said here and pushed the button and he went, ow, spit the bumper out. Or excuse me, it was a duck. Spit the duck out and started coming to me. For me, we can write wrong or indifferent. I did intermittent here, bump, here, bump, here, bump, all the way back to me. He's the type of dog that would rather goof off than try hard, right? He likes to do it. He's happy, but he doesn't take life too seriously. And so in that moment, I thought and felt just like what you're saying. The faster you get back to me, the better. It should be with the bird, but in that instance, it wasn't. And I didn't, to your point, I didn't say go fetch or anything. No, get in here now. Quit screwing around. I did not make him go and get it, but I did rethrow one. He hauled butt to that mark. He marked it better than any of the other birds he had, because he would just run around and hunt, but he's just running around, gets the bird. This next one, hauled butt, picked it up and came back perfect. I don't know if it's stuck, but this is why I did it. He understood that there are consequences to dinking around next day he did the same thing but it's (laughs) that's the kind of guy he is he's just but it may take more than one learning moment for this dog to get the message and same with whoever's listening it's going to take maybe more than one instance but the point is i didn't i wasn't worried about the fetch at that point i wasn't worried about any of it 
you weren't worried about the delivery. Correct. Because the, this was an obedience issue. It wasn't a fetch or, or a hold issue. The dog simply wasn't coming back when it should have been. Yeah. Screwing around. Screwing around. It can bite you in the butt. But if it bites you in the butt, that means your force fetch was not as thorough as it needed to be. Can you describe what you mean by if it bites you in the butt? Yeah. Please. Okay. okay. So you do another retrieve, as you said. You didn't ask the dog to pick up the one that it dropped, but you go ahead and you do another retrieve. And mm-hmm. the dog goes out there, maybe finds it. but Or doesn't, doesn't go. Or doesn't go. But let's let's another scenario. We come back to that one. Sure. Dog goes out there, but won't pick it up. Okay. Because it's associating a correction with the bird or the bumper. Mm-hmm. So now it's going, I'm not going to go near that because I can get into trouble. Correct. So what do you do in that moment? You force fetch the dog. We're going to assume you did a good job at force yep. fetching the dog. The dog's wires are just crossed. So you stop the dog and you get your butt out there to the bird or the bumper. You don't try and handle the situation where from where you're running from. That's correct. You get yourself right out there to where the dog and the bumper is. Because when you're there, you have complete control of the situation. You walk over to where that bumper or bird is. With the dog. The dog may be sitting a few yards from it. That's what's ideal. Dog sitting a few yards from it. And you throw your arm down toward the bumper and press the button and say fetch. It's a nick fetch. The dog refused to pick up the retrieve. It's a forced retrieve at this point. But at least you're right out there where the dog is and the bumper is so you can control the situation. And if the dog doesn't respond appropriately then, then it's time to simplify. Pick up the bird, throw it on the ground, then go nick fetch. You cannot stop correcting because the dog will must understand that the only way to turn off the pressure is to respond appropriately to it, and that is to pick up the bird. And we could go further. And, yeah, no, but I, I don't think right. it's necessary. The, but those are the things that those are the things that can happen. Those are the things. But that that's why happen. we do force fetch, right? And there, we definitely want to simplify those situations by getting out there to make sure that we get a proper response very quickly. We don't need this to turn into a ten correction deal. We need to nip it in the bud right there in one second. Don't be lazy and have it be black and white. And have it be black and white. Because let's say, for instance, you're a hundred yards away dog drops it and now it's hunting i just did air quotes hunting you say fetch and it's going oh crap i've got to fetch it but it can't find it right away and you're nicking and you're fetching and that's inappropriate you the the reason kevin is saying to run out there and be with the dog is so that you and the dog know where that bumper or duck is for that dog to have a timely correction and be able to turn it off immediately and succeed immediately. You want clarity. You want clarity. If you were to do it at a distance, you and that dog wouldn't be able to deliver clarity, and then it becomes a complete cluster. Yeah. And I see that. Uh, I, I I've seen it enough where it's like, whoa, 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 run out there, get out there, get out there, get out there. Yeah. Um, go ahead. I I'd just like to give one uh, one pearl out there for everybody. In the past year, I have changed the way that I deal with situations that are not going well out in the field dramatically. If I make you know a couple of corrections and I continue to get cast refusals or something like this is happening that we just described, I am getting out there in the field very quickly. I want to be five to 10 yards from that dog. If I've made a couple of corrections and I'm not getting the cast or the dog is not doing something that I need them to do, I don't want to keep piling pressure on that dog. I don't want to keep getting refusals to do what I'm asking them to do. And there's something that happens when you walk out in the field. Everything stops. There's a moment 
there's some time that lapses while you're walking out there where the dog gets a chance to compose itself, to regroup. You get a chance to compose yourself and regroup and think about the situation that's going on and how, what are the different ways I can deal with this matter right in this moment so that you're not shooting from the hip and potentially creating another problem. Sure. And I can guarantee you that when you walk out there and you are only five to 10 yards from the dog and you deal with whatever situation is that's going on, you're almost 99% of the time going to get the right outcome. Yep. And then they are successful. They're successful and they're not coming back from it going, oh my God, what just happened? I also that think us me. being out there, they go, oh crap, he will come. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's yeah. the the amount of control you have when you get out there is incredible. Yeah. The amount of uh, the ability just to get the situation to happen. That's, that's what I love about it. And I put it into practice for the last year and I can tell you the results are unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. I think they, they, you made a bunch of comments about getting composure and all that. I 100% agree. But I also think that they see me coming and go, I better think here. Yeah, absolutely. I better think here because it's not 150 yards away. It's now in my face. And then they, they literally go, oh, you meant that way? Yeah, I'll go that way. It's, but you say it all the time of like distance erodes control. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you shorten that and simplify, mm. Uncle Bob means business. He's coming out here. And I'm it's not just me. Yeah. And I don't mean it like I'm going out there and uh, yeah, overly yeah. intimidating them, but it, sometimes it can be that way. Or other times it's just like, shit, he did come out here. <laughs> you can see it in their eyes. Like, <laughs> damn it. And you didn't just go halfway. You didn't just walk out 50 no. yards. If you're, if the dog's 50 yards from you, walk out 40 yards. If the dog's at 250 yards from you, walk out 240. I'm serious. Yeah. Changes the game. Changes the game. Yeah. This is, uh, you made a comment earlier. It's an art. It's, uh, it's not a book even though there are books, it's not a fetch program or a Patreon. These are all resources to help get you where you need to go. But the, like this little instance that we just had a, an awesome 10 minute discussion. <laughs> we, on, we asked about sloppy, like sloppy, oh dogs turned sloppy into holes, like a dog half who, hour, very thorough 17, just different examples of what could, yeah. should, does like it. I would imagine most people don't have to deal with. It's, it's that rarity, but there are instances that this stuff happens and that's the art. And if you've never been put in that position, you're going to go, I don't know what to do. Exactly. And maybe you heard this and go, I have a little tool in the tool belt to, to try it. It's an art, not a science. It's a feel. It's a body language thing. It's your body language. It's your energy. It's their energy. It's manipulating us. I feel like we're very manipulative in how we train. We can manipulate them by upping our voice and talking in a higher pitched voice. It can be, I'm not really mad, but I can sound mad. And all of a sudden I get that change. Hey, good dog. And my voice changes again. How you blow the whistle. Yep. All of these things are just tweaking and shaping and molding and all of a sudden that dog starts doing the things you want and like i said it's trusting the process that it doesn't have to look perfect today but what does it look like a month from now a little bit better and then three months from now and what do you want it to look like when it's five years from now these are what we're building towards so anything you'd like to touch on or add or no i think i think we've done a good job covering a lot of things here tonight i think it's, it's been fun it's been really fun it was fun having you in person my friend Thank you for, for coming here. Thank you for spending time with me and Kevin and Kev's family down there. And thanks for sharing your knowledge and insight to the people who listen to this podcast. Um, I think you're going on two years of our most downloaded episodes, my my bud. You're, you're 
the most popular podcast. Love so, it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Feel good about that, bud. <laughs> so thank you for being a part of our community and the people who listen to us. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to spend time with you guys. Absolutely. And everyone who tunes in, uh, sincere from Kevin and Kevin and myself, thank you for listening. Thank you for being a part of all this. And uh, we'll see you in the next episode. Hey, if you haven't done it already, jump into patreon.com forward slash Lone Duck Outfitters. If you enjoy the show and want to want to support the show, if this show has helped you and your dog grow together, if you enjoy our Instagram, if we've helped you at all, it's like buying me and Kevin a beer and you get more one-on-one from me. You get content that doesn't hit Instagram or YouTube and it enters you to win a free hunt with me and Kevin in Missouri this duck season. So jump on, links in the description. We'd be happy to have you and love to help you. Hey listeners, Nick Larson here, host of the Bird Shop Podcast. As fans of this show, you may be interested in the conversations on the Bird Shop Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting, from upland birds and their habitat and conservation to the shotguns, bird dogs, and gear used to pursue them. Whether you're a seasoned upland hunter or just getting started and wanting to learn more, I interview a wide range of guests, each with their own unique perspective and valuable experience to share. If you're on the hunt for more upland hunting conversation, please consider subscribing to the Bird Shop Podcast today. Thank you.